Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Hey everybody, we're back with Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We are high off of the massive success of Band on the Run, and we are going to dive into its spiritual and actual sequel, Venus and Mars. Before we do that, we're going to catch up with Paul and Wings and his brother Mike McCartney, known as McGear, on the album McGear, recorded in January in February of 1974, which is effectively a Wings album. Right, Chris? It's a secret Wings album. It's a bit of a treat, actually. And if you've never heard it, it's well worth looking into. There's a song called Leave It that actually reached number 36 in the UK singles charts. And it is one of my favorite Wings songs, I'd say. It's a great song, isn't it? Yeah, it's really very, very good. Very catchy. It has a bizarre saxophone part that I think is played by Paul, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, very bizarre saxophone playing, but very infectious. And a great song with a great melody, some strange lyrics. One of my favorites. Some risque lyrics, actually. Yeah. I dearly love your, it's either arty jokes or artichokes. (laughs) Pretty sure it's arty jokes. It's very funny. Shall we just play a bit of it to kick this thing off? We definitely should. Another highlight on this album for me is Sea Breezes, which is a Brian Ferry song from Roxy Music. And this is a wonderful record produced by Paul. It's written by neither of them. It's a cover all around. And yet I think it's a highlight. Good production by Paul. Good singing by Mike. Shame. A shame. 
Yeah, it's really amazing how good of a singer Mike is. And yeah. how good some of these songs are. Simply Love You could have easily been on a Wings album. Fine song. What Do We Really Know? Another fantastic performance. And you had just sent me Liverpool Lou. I don't know much about that. Can you... Tell me more about Liverpool, Lou. Yeah, apparently it's a reunion of Mike McCartney's earlier band, Scaffold. And it's a single, the B-side, 10 years after Strawberry Jam. Yes. is has interview fragments, including Paul McCartney, and it's you'll see it listed sometimes under Paul McCartney's discographies. Yeah, it, it, Liverpool, Lou, I think is about as good as anything on McGear. It's a really good song. Written by Mike McCartney. I think Wings pretty much plays it, too. It's Wings and Scaffold. Yes. It sounds like a drinking song, like in, for like an old it English does. tavern or something. It does, but then it has these very sweet strains that make it a little more than just a drinking song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's... I, I, let me, I'll, play you, I'll play you an example of the, of the verse right here, and you'll see what I mean. All right. When I go walking... I hear people talking, school children playing. I just know what they're saying. They're saying you grieve me, and that you deceive me. Some morning you leave me, all packed up and gone. All Wow. Yeah. These, I, I just, I remember grabbing this record as a kid. I must have been 19 and getting this thing after going through most of the Wings albums and just being blown away. It's like, it's really like finding like a buried treasure. It's like finding yeah. another room in your house that you didn't know existed or something. Yeah. So this album is significant for introducing Jimmy McCulloch, the great young guitarist who will take over as the lead guitarist for Wings. Yeah, he is fantastic. I'm, he's probably my favorite guitar. Mm. It's between McCulloch and what's the guy on Back to the Egg? I didn't even really get a chance to shine. Lawrence, oh, Lawrence Juber. Juber. Yeah. yeah. Two, he, he did go on to be quite a notable guitarist, though, in his own right. Right. But unfortunately, McCulloch not so, right? He died at the age of, was it 26 or 27? Very young, Yeah. Yeah, tragedy, tragedy. Anyway, speaking of tragedy... We'll come back to that, but... Yeah, So after Paul spends time with his brother and Wings in Stockport, England, recording McGear, he flies over to L.A. with Linda, and he's there in March and April of 74. And this is where some fascinating Beatles lore and history takes place. John and Paul meet back up again. John's out in L.A., trying to escape himself, escape Beatle John as it is. They record this, I would call it infamous as opposed to famous. Definitely the, infamous. Yeah. A Toot and a Snore in 74, recorded at Burbank Studios, L.A. Paul's on drums, Lennon's on piano, Stevie Wonder's there, Harry Nilsson's there, a big pile of cocaine is there. <laughs> <laughs> and I know... You haven't heard all of it. I know you've heard some parts of it. I've listened to the thing, and it, it's it's really hard to listen to. I guess we could play a little bit of it. Yeah, might as well. Drop back your bow and let your arrow. My lover 
So okay. yeah, there you have it. It's sloppy. Okay, that's the the big John and Paul reunion there. Yeah, and Paul on drums. Paul playing a backseat to John in the whole situation too. So the story I hear is that, or at least someone interpreted it this way, that Paul knew early on in this session that this was not going to be the big John and Paul reunion, and he chose to get on drums and take a kind of a low key role. And kind of reinforce the idea that, oh, no, 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 we're just fucking around here. Well, that's good because uh, it just opens the door for all of the times that John and Paul missed each other in the 70s. And even in the 80s when John was talking about it, about working together again. There's some story at this time because after Paul is in L.A., this is when we kick into the actual Venus and Mars portion of this podcast. (laughs) He goes to Nashville, but before he goes... He gives a message to John, more or less, from Yoko, who Paul saw in London. Yoko was real bent out of shape because they were split up at this point in time. Paul had a party with Harry Nilsson, which actually this party, I want you to tell the angel dust story right after this. But (laughs) Paul pulls John aside and he's like, look, she still loves you, man. These are the things you have to do. And John ended up back in New York at the end of the month. This goes to show you the influence these guys still had on each other five years out from, or four or five years out from the Beatles breaking up. Yeah. So what was that uh, angel dust thing? Oh, oh. (laughs) Yeah, apparently in 74, at the height of all the Harry Nilsson, John Lennon madness, there was a party that Paul attended at which Harry Nilsson offered Paul some angel dust, which is PCP, which is <laughs> hog tranquilizer, or oh like boy. large animal tranquilizer, yeah. basically. Yeah. And Paul asks, well, what is it? Harry Nilsson says, well, it's elephant tranquilizer. <laughs> and Paul says, well, is it fun? And Harry Nilsson says, no. <laughs> and Paul says, well, I guess I won't have any of that then. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Paul, you know, it's no secret that Paul loves his marijuana. No secret at and all. And loves an occasional drink, but really not a big druggie. No, not at not, all. Not, not likely to go for something like PCP. It's a good Paul story in a way. It kind of says something about his relationship to substance abuse that, that he didn't just jump on the angel dust bandwagon, you know. Man, that is a funny story. I can't get over that. <laughs> Harry Nilsson and Paul McCartney having that conversation. It's almost something out of a movie that nobody's ever seen. Yeah. So, yeah, we catch up with Paul. They go down to Nashville for six weeks. And here they record Junior's Farm, Sally G, Bridge Over the River Suite, Walking in the Park with, is it Eloise or Eloise? Eloise. Eloise. Send Me the Heart. The very nice Denny Lane composition. And so this was transplanting portions of the McGear Wings Band to Nashville. Right. And adding the drummer Jeff Britton. The, was he a black belt in karate? (laughs) That's right. He appears in one hand clapping in his karate 
uniform. Yeah, like breaking wood, right? Just like chopping yeah. it up or something like that. That's right. There are some clips of him of him kicking and stuff. That's just in, in one hand clapping. Bonkers, man. Yeah, and apparently Jimmy McCulloch, bit of a druggie, didn't get along too well with the straight-laced Jeff Britton. The the karate doing, no <laughs> drug doing Jeff Britton didn't get along very well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With the pioneering drug user, Jimmy McCulloch. <laughs> I mean, it might be worth mentioning at this point, Jimmy McCulloch's brief history. Jimmy McCulloch was in a band called Thunderclap Newman, which was a project that Pete Townsend had produced. And there's that fantastic Something in the Air song. I oh. don't know if you've heard that. I don't know it. We should definitely play that here. It actually made, at that point, McCulloch the... Youngest person to have performed on a number one hit song in the UK. And well, I'm happy to get to know it now. Let's just do it. Yep. Take a listen. So from that success, one could most likely argue Paul had his eye on him, brought him in the band. So speaking of Jimmy McCulloch, one of his finest performances in Wings is on the first song we'll discuss from this album era, Junior's Farm, recorded July 16th to July 18th, 1974 at the Sound Shop in Nashville. It was released as a single on October 1st. 1974 and Junior's Farm is actually Norbert Curley Putman Jr., the farm they were staying at when they recorded these sessions. What do you think about Junior's Farm? I'm very fond of Junior's Farm. It's a McCartney rocker. It's in the tradition of Helen Wheels, Soily, Get Back, all those great songs. And it rolls right along, basic blues track. The lyrics mm, don't make a lot of sense. I'm okay with that in this case. Yeah. Because they're really fun. And they add up to some kind of, I don't know, some kind of fun, coming and going, optimistic crowd of characters, I guess. Come on down to Junior's Farm. So I'm okay with it. it. It's the kind of McCartney nonsense I enjoy. I think it's a great set of lyrics, as ridiculous as they are. The mm-hmm. It's more or less uh, Wings' Get Back. One note, song, it's in G, goes down to an F for a bit. and uh, But it's more or less just one chord. 
The bass guitar work is pretty fun. That little like funky riff at the end. And uh, yes, Paul actually recorded the bass at with the tape at double speed. So the instrument sounded an octave Ooh. lower than a bass guitar can actually produce. So that's why Great. you have that. It really pumps too. It really yeah, pumps that along. just that heavy, heavy, nasty sound. Ernie Winfrey, the engineer on this session, said it was one of the cleanest basses he'd ever recorded. The, the mm. bass guitar was plugged directly into the console, so there's not even an amp. It's just yeah. straight to tape. And you can I think you can hear it. Also love the flanging on the vocal. Oh, it's great. Sounds great. Perfect for this song. Jimmy McCulloch really gets a chance to shine on this song. There's a little break where Paul basically introduces Jimmy, and Jimmy has a great solo. Take me down, Jimmy. <laughs> yep. Let's just play that right here. Absolutely. Take me down, Eight very talented guitarists, as you can hear. Have you seen the single artwork? I have, right? It's the one where they're all dressed up in uh, old-fashioned clothes. And they're playing poker, and there's an actual seal, like, on the table, and they're all staring at it, and it's like, what the hell is going on here? That's right. Well, you know, there's an actual TV ad. Did you watch that? I did, yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And that picture, I think, is taken, I guess, must be taken from that same session. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the ad's really strange. You don't see things like that anymore. In fact, you you didn't see those much beyond the 70s, I want to say. I don't remember seeing television ads for new albums in no, the 80s. No, no, they're very I mean, they're very expensive, you know. And Yeah. So this song released October 1st, 1974 as a single, made it to number 16 in the UK and number 3 in the US of A and was the first single we saw after the release of Band on the Run. So you might argue that this made it to number three, uh, despite the goofy lyrics based on the goodwill of Band on the Run. Yeah, now they tried to flip this single in the U.S., right? And they actually had an ad campaign where they announced it as such. Hey, we flipped McCartney's latest single, now Sally G's the A-side. Yeah. They thought Sally G would be a bigger hit. They tried to actually re-release it as an A-side in 75, but it only uh-huh. made it up to number 17 on the charts. Still, that's pretty good. Yeah. For a song that was just a B-side. And in a re-release, right? More or less. Yeah. Speaking of Sally G. Let's speak of let's speak to Sally G. Recorded July 9th, 1974, so seven days before work was started on Junior's Farm at the same studio. Somewhere to the south of New York City lies the friendly state of Tennessee. Down in Nashville town I met a pretty Made a pretty big fool out of me And they call her Sally Sally G Why do you want to do the things you do to me? You're my Sally Sally G the song is inspired by an incident where Paul was at Skull's Rainbow Room in Nashville, having a drink, watching an artist named Diane Gaffney. 
And from that experience, you know, having maybe one too many, walked out, ended up at a piano in the back of the place, and wrote a song called, uh, you know, Diane G, or... Diane G, right. And he's, you know, Paul being Paul, was like, I should probably change this, so... I can't imagine how it went as Diane. Yeah, I I was trying to sing it in the car on my way over to record, and it doesn't make much sense. Diane. Diane G. G. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make much sense at all. This, though, is one of those McCartney country gems. I think this is the best example of the country McCartney. Well, you know, it's also the last of that for a while, too. Yeah, you're right. Hmm. It's like this little period. I was looking at the archive book at the photographs, these very comical photographs of McCartney prancing around in mirrored glasses and cowboy hat and boots, acting, you know, with the flowery shirt and the whole cowboy routine. Seems as if his whole, the whole country Paul period reached its apotheosis at this time. And he pretty much, you know, we max out on country Paul and that's it for a while. I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of a truly country Paul song for a good long while after this. Yeah, there's nothing on the next record. There is, I mean, some of the London Town stuff is sort of country, but not really. Sally G. Me and Sally took up. Things began to look up. Now, he did revisit Hey Diddle while in Nashville, right? Yes. Yeah, they put the, the fiddles on that. Put the fiddles on. Yeah. yeah. So we have several versions of Hey Diddle. <laughs> but yeah, I get the feeling this is this is Paul getting the country thing out of his system once and for all. Which is a bit of a shame. It would have been nice to hear some more of that. But, you know, we have what we yeah, have. he's good at it. The other tracks from this period, Bridge Over the River Suite. Anything you want to say about that one? Not really. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> it's an it's an instrumental track and a fine one. I hear it as more of a wings warm up than a real track. It's not bad. That's not... It's not bad. No, no. It's good B-side material. Speaking of good B-side material, Walking in the Park with Eloise. What a fantastic little song. I really like that one. Actually. <laughs> What's that? It's the it's the A-side here, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Country Hams. You're right. I, I, sit, yeah. I sit corrected. Yeah. It, it. I think it's a good little song written by Paul McCartney's father. Yeah, Jim.
Do you know if there are lyrics for this song? I'm not sure, and the thing I always get so baffled by is how did Paul remember all of like the little inflections? I mean, is this the Beatles training coming to the forefront where he just had to commit all these things to memory? I remember reading somewhere that his dad didn't own a record machine at some point when they were growing up, and he would play these songs on the piano, and Paul would yeah. have to remember them. Is that this happening, maybe? Well, Paul, Paul mentions casually in the Beatles in the Venus and Mars archive book that he remembered the song and just played it for Chet Atkins on the spot. So he probably, I get the impression reading some interviews on this topic that Paul's dad simply played the piano at home. They didn't have a record player or anything. So Paul grew up in a pretty musical environment with his dad constantly playing songs from memory Paul probably just picked that up as a normal thing. Right. You just learn songs and memorize them and play them at the piano and that's that. Or else you don't have any music in the home. That's it. That's your right. source of music. So I guess this is pretty ingrained in Paul from childhood. And if this is a song that Paul's dad played around the house a lot, I'm not surprised that Paul had it at his fingertips. Yeah, you're right. That's probably the best analysis we're going to get on this one. I don't know how much information exists. So it's a fun one. It's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. It's a good record. Paul plays washboard on it. (laughs) (laughs) There are photographs of Paul with his brand new washboard that he bought in Nashville. Yeah, he was definitely playing a character of some sort during this Nashville. Yeah, he had something in his in his craw, in his brain. (laughs) So from there, should we talk about Send Me the Heart? Why don't don't you talk about Send Me the Heart? I don't know that one that well. I don't know a lot about Send Me the Heart. I I actually just heard it for the first time a couple weeks ago because of the glorious miracle that is spotify you can find a lot of these like denny lane songs like these wing songs that denny claimed that he later released on albums like japanese tears and stuff like that and they're okay i mean they're all right they sound unfinished send me the heart is a decent it's definitely paul playing bass it's definitely paul on the background vocal i know it's a co-write but it's a middle of the road song it's okay Nashville, in my opinion, in our opinion, maybe I'll say, was a success. You get Junior's Farm, you get Sally G. Wings, Linda, Paul, they all go back to London. August 74, they do a tour rehearsal because Paul's already thinking he wants to get on the road. He wants to, like, let's do this. I want to make a new album. So this is the sessions that provide us one hand clapping which until a couple years ago was unreleased. That's right. It came out on the Band on the Run EMI Archive Edition. Yes. And this is where you'll find they recorded Band on the Run, Jet, My Love, Let Me Roll It, 
Junior's Farm, Soily, even these bizarre little versions of I'll Give You a Ring, Babyface, Suicide. And it's a lot of fun. It's not the highest quality material, but it's fun to see Wings really starting to take off at this time. Yes. Some of the performances are really pretty good. Yeah. On one hand clapping. Yes. Paul seems to be in really good voice. He's very on his game, both as a, an instrumentalist and as a singer. Seems very excited. It's fun. It's a lot of fun to watch and to listen to. I mean, you, you yeah. hear Jet and you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I've heard this on... <laughs> the best version of that is on the album, Band on sure. the Run. But when you see something like Little Woman Love into Sea Moon or the alternate take of Live and Let Die with the big orchestra, it's like, this is yeah. fun. This is good fun. Yeah. You have to love the casually smoking conductor. Oh, yeah, of course. Remember that? He's just standing there casually with his cigarette, conducting with the other hand. Yeah, man, it's just a better time. It's just a (laughs) funnier time. Same month, uh, in the backyard of EMI Studios, Paul recorded 20 minutes of songs, Blackbird, Blackpool, 20 Flight Rock. You know, it just, some of these are covers. Some of these are McCartney originals. Blackpool's an interesting one. We don't have to touch on it too long. You can find this on Mm. YouTube. You should check it out. Because Paul is in this same high-quality voice that you're speaking to, just him on an acoustic guitar. And that's at the front of the his music video collection, that the title of which escapes me right now. The McCartney Years. Apparently he wasn't busy enough at the time and yeah. wasn't making quite enough recordings. He needed to set up and do this one as well. Right. And it's fine. <laughs> it's really good. So yeah. they get this all out of their system, and then Paul has it in his head. They need to make a new album. In the McCartney ethos, he pulls up the map and he throws the arrow at (laughs) New Orleans. So they show up in January after the record label set up the studio, set up the hotel. I could imagine if you're from England, January is a pretty great time to show up in New Orleans. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely if you're as well off and infamous and famous as Sir Paul, right? So they book... Alan Toussaint's Sea Saint Studios, the same place that Ernie K. Doe recorded Mother-in-Law. You know that one? I don't. Oh, I'm going to send you that one, too. We're going to play that one right here. Um, it's, a ma- it's a fun song. Actually, uh, all of Alan Toussaint's songs are amazing, but that is a whole separate thing, too. Mother-in-Law. So when does is, when is Jeff quit? Does he quit right here? I don't know if Jeff quits exactly. Wasn't he more let go? Yeah. I guess it's maybe it's a little unclear, but I think they finally decided they couldn't work with Jeff anymore. Jeff is gone, and he was replaced by the very skillful Joe English, was recommended by Tony Dorsey. Yes. Joe was in a band called The Tall Dogs, and this swap happened in about 30 hours. Tony called the band leader of the Tall Dogs, and 30 hours later, I can't remember exactly where Joe was, but 
He found a replacement for the session he was in, flew his drums and himself out to New Orleans, and they just started. They just jumped right in. Could you imagine that? Getting a call from nope. Paul McCartney in 1975? <laughs> I don't think Joe English could imagine it either. Paul was cracking wise about how they lost a drummer named Jeff Britton, who was English, and gained a drummer called Joe English, who was American. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so here we are. Wings is in Nashville. We have a new drummer. Jimmy McCulloch is well-oiled and ready to rumble. Denny Lane, ever faithful, is standing with Paul and Linda. We're ready to make a fantastic sequel to Band on the Run. But That's first, right. why don't we catch up with the remainder of the Fabs, John, George, and Ringo. The first up is Walls and Bridges by John Lennon from September about this album yeah i think it has some excellent songs on it but i'll tell you it's probably my least favorite john lennon studio solo album of original material meaning i guess i'm not that crazy about rock and roll but other than rock and roll this probably ranks last for me and i know that conventional wisdom is that sometime in new york city really sucks i actually think if you're comparing record one the studio album of sometime in new york city to Walls and Bridges, I'll take the former. So my problem with this album is not that the songs are bad. It's that it's recorded. It has this canned sound, this murky sound quality that really gets in the way of of enjoying the album. The performances also feel very phoned in. Yeah, it's not his best album. It was one of his most commercially successful albums because Lennon hired Al Corey, our friend from Band on the Run, after he saw what happened with Jet and Band on the Run to pick a single. And he chose Whatever Gets You Through the Night. And it was a number one for John in the U.S. Now, maybe I'm picking a fight here, but this is a song I just despise. Oh, really? See, (laughs) I love this is one of my favorite John Lennon songs, period. Really? Yeah. To me, it's the most canned-sounding 
pretty much typical 1974 production at its worst. I'm not an Elton John fan anyway, so that doesn't add any charm to it for me. So yeah, I think it's, it's it might be one of the most commercial sounding songs released by any of the solo Beatles. I'm surprised you don't like it. I really don't. And, and I normally like things that sound very 70s, but this is an aspect of the 70s sound, this kind of ultra-professional studio production that I'm not crazy about, and it seems almost exemplified by this track. It's so funny that you mention that, because Elton had bet Lennon when they were recording in the studio that it would top the charts. And Lennon said, never, no way, it's not going to happen. And Elton's like, well, if mm. it does, you have to perform it live with me. And it did, and they did. And mm-hmm. Lennon's last appearance, public appearance, was recorded in Madison Square Garden on the 28th of November of 75. They sang, I Saw Her Standing There, where John introduces it as a song by an old estranged fiancé of his, you know, mm-hmm. being Paul. They did Lucy in the Sky. And I think Lennon played tambourine on the bitch's back, too. The tracks were released, not the bitch's back, but the previous three were released as an EP in November of, of, I'm sorry, this was in 74, not 75. So this was released in November of 74. Now, there are songs I love on this album. Number Nine Dream, I think is a wonderful song. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's a core of great songs on this album that are, I think, really beautifully represented on Men Love Avenue, posthumous release, 1986, that features on side B the demos or rough run-throughs of about, what is it, five or six of the songs from Walls and Bridges. And it absolutely, for me, redeems the album and brings those songs to life. And I'm, I'm not normally the guy who likes the stripped-down version, <laughs> but I really think Walls and, the songs on Walls and Bridges get buried in the production. They don't lend themselves to the kind of big Phil Spector production that he sort of habitually slathers onto them. And these very direct, simple live-in-the-studio demos really capture the songs. What is it? Uh, what You Got? I'd argue what that one, I won, that one's really good, but it does... If, if you don't like that 70s production, you probably hate it, because it's even... I don't like that one very much, no. I don't know what you got, but I don't know. Tell you, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, and beef, beef Jerky is similarly kind of pointless 70s proto-disco sound to me. The only one where you could argue against what you're saying, if I had to go to bat with you on this, is nobody loves you when you're down and out. I think that is fantastic, exactly the way oh, it I is. Oh, I love that song. Yeah. I love that song. I I do prefer the Men Love Avenue stripped down version, though. Oh, no way. I like the big, like, Frank, like, John wanted like that to be singing. Frank. I like the singing so much more oh, on okay. the Men Love Avenue. John sounds on most of this album as if he's really phoning it in. Actually, interestingly, the songs that you're referring to that you like, such as Whatever Gets You Through the Night and What You Got, those are actually pretty spirited vocals. Those are good vocals. But I think that some of the some of the better songs get some of the weaker, more phoned-in vocals. Yeah. And, and Nobody Loves You When You're Down and Out is a good example of that. Nobody loves you when you're down and out Nobody sees you when you're on cloud night Everybody's hustling for a buck and a dime I'll scratch your back And you scratch mine I've been a 
Scared is good. Yeah. yeah. Scared. Yeah. Scared is good. Scared. But that's and another one really gets lost for me with the big horns and the big production. Hmm. But I love the. I do like the production on number nine dream. That one's solid for me. That may be the overall best track on the album for me. Got it. Where I think the material and the production work well together. Well, you're going to have to go out folks and A and B these two records to find out what you like the most. Cause Chris and I can't seem to <laughs> agree on this one. It's nice if we disagree. Once in a while. Oh, it's great. I actually, this is, it shows that where this isn't just a staged phony thing. This album ended up going silver in the UK, and it sold gold in the States. Number one on the US Billboard 200, only number six on the UK album charts. But it did go number one on the Canadian RPM albums charts. So despite it being, you know, over 70s at times, it sold, made money. Yeah. The next one up on the hit parade is Ringo Starr's Goodnight Vienna from November of 1974. Now, this one's a real standout for me. I love this one. Yeah, this one's amazing. It's a really worthy follow-up to Ringo, also produced by Richard Perry. And it might not have the high points that Ringo does with great tracks like Photograph, but it's pretty solid and inspired sounding really throughout. Yeah, Snookaroo, another Elton John tune, Uh is a solid song. The No-No song, for what it is, that's on there. That's kind of, it's fun. The title track is a good song by John Lennon. Oh, that's a great song. That's probably the best one on the record. you have also some of these other tunes written by other people that are really, really, really good. Like, was it acapella? Aca- how do you say that? Acapella. Yeah. 
That's an Alan Toussaint, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's a wonderful version of that from 72 by Van Dyke Parks on his album Discover America. Great album. It had an interesting rollout. Only You and You Alone was released as a single in the U.S. and the U.K. in November, like basically right before the record came out, like a week before. Another great tune. Really, really nice, Ringo's version. Then the No-No song was released in the U.S. only as a single at the top of 75 in January. Snookaroo, U.K. only, February of 75. And then... It's All Down to Goodnight Vienna was released in the summer of 75 to help push the album. And this one, just like John's previous, went silver in the UK and gold in the US. Did you see the television commercial with the uh, Lennon voiceover? I did not. You should check this one out. It's crazy. There's a like a flying saucer, the one from the album sleeve. It lands on the roof of Capitol Records in Hollywood. And John Lennon's wow. doing like a voiceover and Ringo is out there. It's crazy. It's goofy. These guys were just out of their minds, had all the money and time in the world, and they just <laughs> did what they wanted, man. Is that Ringo Starr advertising his new album, Good Night Vienna, on Apple Records and Tapes? It certainly is, John. Wow, you look so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. I was born in the north of England. I was raised in a working town. I broke all the rules when I went to school, but the teachers couldn't pin me down. I tried to make my parents proud By adapting to the social powers Oh, pigs will fly and the earth will fry When they get there The magic that you do You're my dream come true My one, my one and only you Good night, Vienna on Apple Records and tapes. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure, Ringo. Yeah, it's a really good album. I recommend it highly. It's, I'd say, maybe just a notch below Ringo, but basically excellent. And if you if you like Richard Perry's work as a producer, yeah. then this is a good example of that. You know, we never did touch on Ringo's single, Back Off Boogaloo. Oh, yeah. From That's from 72. And the most notable thing about that single for me is its B-side, Blind Man. Ooh. One word, Blind Man. It's a remarkable psychedelic track, kind of a lazy psychedelic track that reminded me very much of early Beck. Yeah, I agree with you on that. It's an interesting single. Both both the A-side and B-side are, are really pretty interesting. I think Blind Man's more interesting than Back Off Boogaloo, though. And I think there was some suggestion that Back Off Boogaloo was aimed at McCartney. Yeah, if you look at the lyrics, kinda. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, Maybe. I, I'm not sold all the way on that. You know, yeah. Ringo's not the strongest songwriter in the world, so it, it may be or it may not be. For the sake of the... Beatles lore, it's funnier or more interesting to say than it is. So, if you want to say that it is, sure. fine. Sure. Back off, back off, back off, back off, back off, 
This album was not as big as a success as Lennon's, though. It was only eight on the U.S. Billboard 200, and in the U.K. made it only up to number 30. And this is among the last really primo material we get from Ringo. Yes, that's correct. We get a few more things, but this is the last really solid, great album from Ringo. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Moving on, we have Dark Horse from the Dark Horse himself, George Harrison. Yeah. Released December of album bit of a miss doesn't quite work out but neither is it bad i do think it's underrated i think too much is made of his scratchy voice on a few tracks it's not even the entire album well it's great it's great that his voice is scratchy on the song dark horse it's it's funny it's rock music right and horse the word horse yeah yeah the homonym thought of that yeah dark horse like that i always i always thought that was intentional although i believe there is an outtake of that track where he has his his full voice and it does sound pretty nice. Yeah, it does sound good. I I think the one we have is great, and it's certainly the best song in the album. Ding Dong, Ding Dong is all right, but it's pretty dumb. It's pretty... yeah, the lyrics are really insubstantial, huh? Yeah. Some of the... well... Good production. The production's great. I I don't know if you read... I I read a bit about what was going on. This is the Petty Boyd breakup album. This is... Yeah, that's right. Harrison doing drugs... Drinking in 73 and 74 and just working and avoiding the disaster he had created for himself in and his And simply shady and bye-bye love. He was dealing with some of it head on. on right, this album. yeah, head on. Absolutely. You know, you can hear that he's going through a bunch, but it's it's not a bad album. It's certainly not All Things Must Pass or the, Material world. the fantastic George Harrison that comes out a couple of years oh. after this. Yeah, we I think we agree on that one. But I do, I do think Dark Horse is underrated. It's not so bad. The singing's not so bad. I just think it's a little half-baked. You have some instrumental tracks, some very long, repetitive tracks, such as the, the final track on the album. Yeah, it's good. And again, just like John's and, and Ringo's, this one went gold in the U.S. and silver in the U.K., performing slightly better than Ringo's, not quite as well as John's. It made it to number four on the U.S. billboard, and in the U.K., it did not even chart. And George took a lot of criticism for the subsequent tour. 
Yeah, he blew his he voice had out. Ravi Shankar, right? And yes. he blew his voice out, and it was people were bored by the concert and didn't like his singing. And the album kind of got buried in all the criticism, I think, of the tour. Yeah, and you have to remember, this was the first time a Beatle had been on tour since the Beatles broke up. Yeah. So this was the first appearance, the homecoming for George in a lot of these cities that he had previously been in, and it was it just did not work out. It's too bad. From there, we have Paul releasing Venus and Mars with Wings in May of 1975. So 74, 75, this is still a pretty heavy time, but we're getting to the end of it where the Beatles are all just putting out albums. So if you're a kid at this time, you are having a great summer, a great Christmas every year. (laughs) What was your original experience with this album, Ryan? You know, this is one of the first Wings albums I got. I actually remember the store. It was in uh, Randhurst Mall in a suburb of Chicago. And I bought this one with my own money. And I remember having it in the summer and just driving around. You know what? I don't think I could even drive around at that time. I might have been like riding a bike with a CD player, portable CD player. I loved this album. And I still do like this album or love it rather. It's a great record. It's bizarre at times. It, it's yeah, it's you know, quite strange. <laughs> and uh, there's a couple of missteps on the B-side that might have been, you could have swapped a song or two out. I listened to the whole thing through last night, and I didn't skip a single song. I, I didn't even skip Crossroads. I just let it rock, and it was a, I had a great time. Yeah. What about yourself? I, I absolutely love this album. Absolutely love this album. I got this one at the same time as Band on the Run. I think these albums are natural cousins or sister albums. I was lucky enough to get them and absorb them all at the same time. And so I think of them as linked, and I think of this as a sequel to Band on the Run. And it's damn near as good as Band on the Run, if it weren't, as you say, for those missteps on side two. Right. But it's it's ranks very high among Paul's best solo albums for me. Yeah, it's really, really good. And you could tell he wanted to follow band on the run with something really substantial and he did he delivered he delivered and i mean not to jump ahead or to give away the plot but this album ended up number one just about everywhere canada france new zealand norway spain the united kingdom the u.s like this one went to the top which is funny to see right john puts out an album cracks the top 10 does pretty well Ringo puts an album out. It's okay. George puts an album out. Does a little better. Paul puts an album out. It's the best performing one of all of them. Oh, and it's the best one of all of them. Easily, yeah. One thing that strikes me about Venus and Mars, having done a bunch of review for this podcast and listening to all these albums from 74 and 75, and it absolutely towers in terms of sound quality and in terms of overall energy over all those other Beatles offerings from 74. Yeah, it really, it really, really does. It really comes on. There's a really murky quality to the production on both Dark Horse and Walls and Bridges. Venus and Mars comes on clear, crisp, rather modern sounding in places. Just really good sound quality, really good production, really towers over those other efforts. Yeah, well, the, and the numbers don't lie. 10 million copies sold. And the album spent 77 weeks on the charts. Three singles. Listen listen to what the man said. May 16th, 75. Letting Go, October 4th, 75. And then Venus and Mars Rock Show, October 27th, 75. When 
Letting Go wasn't performing that well. Three big songs, three great songs, an album of great material, and What's Not to Love? Just a couple songs on side two. Exactly, yes. <laughs> yes, as previous, previously mentioned, yes. <laughs> yeah. So let's so, uh, jump in, right? Yeah. Sitting in the stand of the sports arena Waiting for the show to begin Red lights, green lights, strawberry wine A good friend of mine Follows the stars Venus and Mars are alright There's not a lot to say about Venus and Mars. It's an intro to the record. It's an intro to the song Rock Show. It sets, it's reprised on side B. Right. Something that Paul has done. Maybe to the greatest level of success on this record with a song. Tries to do it again with Back to the Egg and it doesn't quite work. But Venus and Mars, whether Paul knows it or not at this time, and he says he doesn't know it, but who knows what the truth is, are the gods of love and more. It just sets the stage for this bit of a melodrama, a bit of a bizarre ride. We get blast right into with Rock Show. Yeah. I've always found the lyrics to Venus and Mars and the reprise to be pretty interesting. A guy yeah. who has a friend that's into astrology and the, the anecdote was like, people would always ask us, you know, like, what sign are you before they even ask you your name? And Linda would respond, no parking. You know? Yeah. What a great answer. Yeah. And, and the two songs are linked in that in both cases, the speaker of the song is waiting for something. On side A, the speaker is waiting for a show to begin, waiting for a rock show to begin. Mm -hmm. On side B, waiting for a starship to arrive. Right. And in both cases, there's a distinctly science fiction element to it. It Yes, it's astrology, not astronomy. But at the same time, you get the feeling that this is happening in the future somehow. Yes. Uh, well, with the starship and all, of course. Yeah, he was reading Isaac Asimov. And yeah, Foundation. You, you you hear it. You hear it in the lyrics. You hear it in the production. The reprise, an interesting fact, was that it was recorded before the intro. So the reprise you hear on the album in time was recorded before the first track on the album. I like that they're so different, too. They are quite different, but they're both really, really Excellent fun. synthesizer work on the second Really, one. really yeah. good synth work. Yeah. Really, really good. But yeah, so this one links right into the song Rock Show, which, man... Lyrically, musically, you got Alan Toussaint on piano. You got Paul rhyming yeah. Hollywood Bowl with concert. I don't even know how to say it. Concert Bago or whatever it is. Concert Gabo. Yeah. The whole green metal suit part in the middle. It's a weird one. Silly Willie with that Billy Bear. Could be Louis. Tell me, what's that man 
It's a, a, another of McCartney's suites. Yet again, McCartney got a sweet structure onto the radio as a big hit. In this case, it's all about different sort of angles on rock bands touring and doing shows. Looks at the uh, audience's perspective a bit. Yeah, it's quite a, an adventurous little track. I love big this. Big number. Yo, it's huge. Great bass guitar work, good vocals from everybody. Amazing guitar stuff, too. And then how about those school bells, right? Mm-hmm. Like the weird school bell chimes before the lights go down part. Yeah. Really nice. Really nice. Not not a heavy song, not like a intellectually massive song, but Paul wanted to be playing in stadiums. He still does this one today. He'll start a show right. or two with Venus and Mars and Rock Show. That's pretty cool. Yeah. To tackle such a big number, still be doing this giant number. It's yeah. great. So there's some connection apparently between the coda of this track and Lunchbox Odd Socks. Yeah, Lunchbox. They might be from the same jam session, conceivably, because it does sound as if the ending of Rock Show is kind of edited on. Well, Lunchbox Odd Socks, as far as I can tell, is them warming up in the studio, and this was one I know that's on the piano demo from a couple years previous to this being recorded. So yeah, it's probably them just working out the jams. They've got a new drummer. They've got a whole new lineup. They're probably just testing, just testing it all. Because it was yeah. one of the first songs recorded. I do like that outro with the put your wig on straight. <laughs> Don't be late. It's just... I first got to know Lunchbox Odd Socks as the B-side of Coming Up. Yeah, released in 80, 1980. Yeah. yeah. Well, good thing we're Yeah, getting... put your wig on straight. <laughs> Can't be late, Yeah, he's man. doing some kind of country. Maybe this is the last of Country Paul, because yeah. he's doing some kind of country character there. Remember I told you I was going to buy those tickets to the rock show? Well, I bought them. I bought them. <laughs> Put your dress on. Come on, then, we're going down to the rock show. Remember last week when I promised you I was going to buy those tickets to the rock show, and I bought them. Come on now. I'll get your dress on. <laughs> yeah, it's that's pretty silly. Unbelievable. Can't be late. And not be. So this one was released as a single, as I had mentioned, and it made it to number 12 in the U.S. and did not chart in the U.K. So number 12, that's pretty good. Not as high as Paul usually gets, but probably because it's so bizarre, but bizarre in a fantastic way. Great song, great track. Now, I love the way Rock Show fades into Love and Song. It's a great transition. Yes, the transitions on this album, and I think it's just because in the past few years, I just like sort of skipped to the song I want to hear. You listen to this album as an album, and it is really well sequenced. Yes. And the transitions are great. But yeah, Love and Song, that's the next track. My heart cries out for love and all that goes with loving, loving song, loving song. My, you're so fine when love is mine. I can't go wrong. Love 
loving song, loving song. I can see the places that we used to go to now. Happiness in the homeland. I know you love this one. I do love this one. I love the vocal on this one. This one ranks up there with my love for me.、Mm. I just I love the slightly smoky, husky quality. He's singing. He's singing pretty high the whole time. He's、right. above middle C most of the time here, but he he imbues it with that smoky kind of soft quality. Goes up to these really high notes in a few places. I think those are A's or B's. And happiness in the homeland, especially That's、right. how he sings that. Beautiful. Really, 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 really nice. Yeah, he sounds dramatically. He sounds like he's straining a little bit, but you can tell that technically he's totally fine, and it has that way too easy sound in a way that,、yeah. that my love has. Yeah. yeah, gorgeous vocal. The lyrics are pretty good. They do wander into a little chopping broccoli at the end, but I think they're basically pretty good. Great lyrics, great Moog work. Milk bottle. Well, so this is a Jeff.、Burton、my yours, my yours, so fine when love is mine. I can't go wrong. That seems a little chopping broccoli. Well, Paul the, even the said the rest of it's good. Yeah, like the whole in the archive book we said earlier, his whole interpretation of this song, his reaction is like, oh wow, I haven't heard that in a while. Right? That's quite a、mm-hmm. silly love song. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it's also sort of spacey. It fits in well. It actually really goes musically and in terms of atmosphere. It goes really well with Venus and Mars. Like it sort of brings us right back to the, the place we were in with the opening track. Well, they loved this one so much. It was the B side to listen to what the man said, the single. And、mm. they actually they spread the recording of this one out from November of seventy four all the way to March tenth of seventy five at Sea Saint. So it was at Abbey Road first, and then just overdubs and then overdubs happening and. Yeah, we have Jeff Britton on this one. This is one of the few Jeff Britton tracks. His milk bottles are still on the record, and he played. There's a picture of that in the book. Also, Bill Black, Bill Black's double bass, who is the bassist for Elvis and the instrument used in the film Heartbreak Hotel. Paul's actually playing that on this song. Oh, that's right. Yep, Linda bought that for him as a present, right? Nice gift to get on your 32nd birthday, huh? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right, so that brings us to track four on the album. You gave me the answer. I love you gave me the answer. Yeah, yeah. I adore this track. 
This one's really special. You know, it's in the honey pie tradition, as Paul himself says. But I kind of like it better than honey pie, actually. Yeah, me too. It's a better this song. Is, this is my favorite of the, of this style, of the honey yeah. pie or the, what's the other one? Like your mother should know, or this kind of vaudevillian. He even said it himself, Fred Astaire style. He was watching a movie of Fred Astaire on TV, and he wrote the song the next day. And this one mm. is actually it goes back as early as possibly 1972 that he wrote this one. Been working on it for a bit of time. Yeah, he he sort of reprises his blackbird chord progression with the the descending chromatic things. Yeah. To their delight, you'd merely invite them in for a cup of tea. And I love you and you you seem to like, you seem to like. But he does a neat thing in this song, which is that he starts that downward progression with a minor five chord. Like if you're in C major, it's a G minor chord that begins that downward progression. Oh yeah, this in, this one's into a, the blackbird sounding thing. If you can find this sheet music or even find them online, definitely pull up these chords if you're a musician. They are fun. They are fun. a lot of inverted bass notes too. Like it's not always the root. They just mm-hmm. walk down the scale in a funny. So like I think there's like a half diminished or a diminished chord in there. It's cool. It's mm-hmm. a cool one. Pretty good lyrics too. Pretty uh, evocative yeah. lyrics. I love you. And you seem to like me. But he's singing it you, in that You, you seem cocky... to like me. What's that? It's you, you seem to like me. Right. It's like you, dash, you seem to like me. And you, you seem to like me. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, it's a really strong tune. Beatles-level material. Places where the cobwebs blow away, I can't forget the airs and graces. Pretty charming. Yeah, it's a good one. And short. And so it's a nice little little toss-off, pretty harmless. Two minutes and 15 seconds, yeah. So that takes us into Magneto and Titanium Man. I'm saying it McCartney style there, Titanium. I would normally refer to it as Titanium, but I'll I'll go with his pronunciation here. I mean, it's goofy. It's really goofy. But it's a really, really fun little rock pop song. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a really nice little rock song. Talking last night. I need a entertaining man. We were talking about you, babe. They said you was involved in a robbery that was due to happen at a quarter to three in a main street. I didn't believe them. I didn't believe them. I need a Yeah, the harmonies and the way the chords move around and even the lyric is really fun. The lyric's incredibly goofy. We went to town with the library. It was very, very strange. strange. (laughs) We swung all over that long, tall bank in the main street. In the main street. You know the one I mean? (laughs) The whole lyric is really strange at every point. Stan Lee likes the song. Somebody asked him about it. Oh, I love it. It's great. You know? Of course. Yeah. Just for the sake of nerddom, the comic books that the song was inspired by are X-Men 43 from April 1968. It's on sale in February of that year. Iron Man 22 from February 1970. And then The Avengers 130 from 1974. So whatever Mm -hmm. comic book store Paul was in, I think was in Jamaica. He got a couple of old ones, then he got a new one, wrote the song. I love the interviews with McCartney about this, too, where he's talking about comics as high art. 
and he was sort of discovering comics as high art yeah. and sort of blown away by what he was seeing because I've had that experience too with my favorite comics where I think, wow, this is as good as anything I've ever seen, frankly. So I sympathize. I agree with you, man. So yeah, I love the idea that Paul wrote this song about comics and about his own rediscovery of comics. It's great. It's really, really good. Also the B-side to the Venus and Mars and Rock Show single. So clearly Paul liked it and wanted to get it out there. Yeah, I wish he would. Has he played this recently? He should bring this one back out. I he, don't think he's played it in ages. I'd love to see bring this back. People would love yeah. that. I would love it. Yeah, there'd be some Wings fans out there who'd have a good time with that. Yeah. So the next track on the record, this is the song that has grown on me the most from this album. I remember despising it the first time I listened to the album. Like, what a boring, slow tune. Oh, you just thought it was sort of a boring blues. Right. But the older I get, every time I revisit this album, I'm like, wow, this is a really smoky, funky Mm. little tune. It's a fine record. Yeah. Yeah. I was always a fan of letting go. I always enjoyed precisely that quality you're talking about. Even as a kid, I thought this was such a almost mysterious, almost creepy sort of my blues, yeah. minor blues song, you know. It's definitely creepy. I mean, Paul liked it enough. They released it as a single in October mm-hmm. 75. And they played it on the tour, too. Yeah. Yes, they did. You can see that in the rock show. You know, we'll get to that next podcast, but they definitely play this tune. Great horn arrangement. I think realized by Tony Dorsey, but from McCartney's instructions, I think McCartney came up with those catchy lines himself. He always like sings the parts to people and then they notate or they just play them. And it works to fine effect on this record. Great lyrics. I love every single lyric on this song. All of them. I want to put her in a Broadway show. Yeah. I love that line. <laughs> like a Lucifer, she'll always shine. Like, I didn't even mm. know that there was a diamond until years later. Like, oh, I get. it's not just talking about... 
It's clever wordplay. What do you think? It's just the the slow tempo of the tune that prevented this from being a commercial success. It's not right up Paul's lane. It was lane. a moderate hit. You know, I remember hearing this song on the radio as a kid. This yeah. song actually got airplay. I, I know it didn't chart very high. Do you happen to have the number on that? Oh yeah, 39 in the U.S. and 41 in the U.K. 39 in the U.S. and yet I definitely remember hearing it on the radio and I remember playing it for friends who recognized it. Somehow it, it got out into the public consciousness a bit. Yeah, still plays. He's played it recently. He's pulling songs off of this record for sure. That's cool. So if you flip the album over, we're reacquainted with Venus and Mars. But as you had mentioned before, we're waiting for a spaceship to come now. Mm-hmm. That spaceship sort of appears in the bizarre little spirits of ancient Egypt. Yes, and here we hit our first big misstep on the album. Yeah. So we get the we get this wonderful reprise of Venus and Mars, and we've already talked about it, but maybe we should play a little bit of it just to keep things in sync here. Sure. So a little little bit of the Venus and Mars reprise. In fact, maybe we should highlight some of the great synthesizer work. Yeah. Venus and Mars are all right So that gets us into Spirits of Ancient Egypt, and this is the first of the missteps we referred to earlier on this album. Yeah, it's based on a book on Egypt that Chet Atkins had recommended to Paul in Nashville. And the lyrics are bizarre, and Denny's singing the vocal. As far as I can tell, this it, it reminds me of like a car that doesn't have a driver in it, but it's like a mm. really nice car. And all the passengers are totally cool with the fact that the car is being just like careening along. It's uh-huh. it because what what Paul is doing on this record is he's doing the number two role really really well. His vocal yes. is great. His bass yes. line is great. It's all really fun and good. But he's not standing next to John Lennon. He's standing next to Denny Lane, who is just sort of singing a bad Paul McCartney song. That's right. <laughs> you know? And, and it is a pretty bad song. Yeah. McCartney admits as much in the EMI archive book. And Parasi, who who I often find to be generous to a fault with Paul, yeah, uh, he's, he's actually a little bit hard on this one, too. That it basically seems to be two unrelated songs slapped together with a verse that's really quite trite and a chorus that tries to be sort of quasi-spiritual but doesn't pull it off in any meaningful way. Yeah, you're right. So neither of us love this one, and it does break the momentum of the album, which all the way through the Venus and Mars reprise is stellar, and then suddenly we hit this weak spot. And let's be clear, I mentioned Chop and Broccoli. It's my third mention of Chop and Broccoli, but 
You can take a pound of love and cook it in a stew. Wow. Really? Yeah. Oh, and by the way, spirits of ancient Egypt. It doesn't yeah, make any I, sense. <laughs> Stuck on the telephone. Yeah, okay. So that's a misstep. That's really, this is the kind of stuff Wings haters in particular can point to and, and say, see how stupid this band is, and it's, it's hard to argue it. That one's bad, but I think it has redeemable qualities. I, I, Medicine Jar, the next track, I'm just not interested in it at all. Oh, okay. I disagree with you a little bit here. I okay. actually prefer Medicine Jar to Spirits of Ancient Egypt. All right, okay. I think Messenger is a solid little song. I understand the intent of introducing Jimmy McCulloch as a as a band member here. I think it would have made a great B-side. Unlike Spirits of Ancient Egypt, I think this would make a great B-side. This would have been a great listen to what the man said B-side. You want to introduce your new band member, give him a chance to sing, give him a chance to be at the front? Fine. Do it on a B-side first. Don't break the momentum of an otherwise amazing album with this. Yeah. So to me, this is less of a misstep than Spirits of Ancient Egypt, which is like an unforgivably bad song. This is more of a bland song. I guess it's, do you want a, a strange bad song or a bland song? I could see picking the former. What's wrong with you? I wish I knew. You say time will tell. I had remembered talking to you about this and saying, get rid of both of these tunes and replace it with something like, I'll give you a ring, or really anything else that Paul's singing it's lead vocal on from this period. Probably could have shoehorned Hey Diddle onto this album yeah. somehow. Yeah, we, we know that as of 1970, late 74, we know that as of late 74, McCartney has the material to replace these two songs. Could have kept the momentum going for this entire album. As it is, we sidestep a little for these two tracks. So you dislike Medicine Jar? Well, okay, no, hold on. I don't dislike 
them. I think both of them are fine on their own. Well, I do sort of dislike Spirits of Ancient uh, Egypt. Okay, all right. I do involuntarily find myself singing along with it, if that says anything. Yeah. But, but I resent the fact that I'm singing along. I mean, the great irony to Medicine Jar, written by Jimmy McCulloch, is that he ended up dying from a drug overdose, right? Yeah, and, and both of his wing songs, both of his wing songs are about addiction. We have Wino Junko on Speed of Sound, the next album. Which is, you know, it's a bit bizarre for a guy like as effervescent as Paul to have these little spots on his Wings albums, which are basically just like fantasy jaunts. They're okay, I guess. Let's get back to the good stuff. track on the record fourth track on the b-side is just unbelievable call me back again great great track good song understandably frequently compared to oh darling this is a sort of a 50s style track it has a little something in common with when the night too if you ask me yeah certainly when the night oh darling it's exactly the same vibe as all those the thing that i had never put together is this song about John Lennon? Once again, I'll go with no, probably not, or maybe unconsciously a little. There are these references to his childhood, and I never heard it that way. I always heard it as a straight love song. Unbelievable vocal performance. Crushes mm-hmm. anything he did in the Beatles on this one. It's crazy. It's pretty aggressive. Especially like the last chorus and the last verse. Like he's just letting it all hang out at this point, ripping up his vocal. They did a really, really good job cleaning this one up on the reissue. Like, it's completely different than it is on the, um, what is the 93 version of the song, mm. the mix. It's it's really, really 
fantastic. Again, you're, you're touching on a lot of like Beatles level material on this record. Yeah, Call Me Back Again, that's top, that's top level McCartney. Could have been a single in my opinion, but whatevs. By the way, just a quick aside since you mentioned the 93 Parlophone, my personal favorite reissue of this one, good luck finding it, would be the DCC from 1990, I think also from 1993. Yeah. It's just, it's really good and it's the most natural sounding. I actually, it's it's a rare case where I actually prefer a CD to an LP, but I even think that DCC is better than the original LP. It's rare I would say that. And not all of DCC's work is, is of such high quality, but certainly the new EMI Archive Edition is very good. So how about the next track? Listen to what the man said. How about it? Another banger. Another great one. Stellar Paul McCartney song. Right. I love this track to death. Yeah. Can't help it. Can't help it. Yeah. Paul and you're like this guy is some supernatural level of talent I don't know how he created this beautiful song I wish it had a third verse with lyrics we get two verses a chorus then a verse with a sax solo instead of a lyric I could have used a third verse that's my one complaint about the song I, I often don't like songs that are repetitive but I think the chorus here is just so good and there's something about the way it feels going back into the chorus of this song that, yeah, it's infectious. I don't mind hearing I think we hear the chorus four times total in this song, and I don't mind it one bit. Yeah, everything about this song is great. From the Linda McCartney kiss, it's actually Linda, to the smoking. Yeah, Orleans. right, while recording the background vocals, she did a kiss at that yeah, moment. Yeah, they mixed in the it in. They got it in there. Yeah. The impression of the meters guitarist that he does at the top, welcome to New Orleans or whatever he says, it's, it's ridiculous. All right, okay. <laughs> Very good to see you down in New Orleans, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just a lot of fun. You were, you were just telling me about Tom Scott's sax solo? That's right. We get a very similar story occurring twice here. On Band on the Run, we didn't mention it on the podcast, but on Band on the Run, the song Bluebird has a sax solo by Howie Casey. And the story with that solo is that Howie Casey came in, did what he thought was a run-through, and it turned out the tape was rolling. He was just acquainting himself with the song. Very casual, very, let me just toot a little something here and see how it goes. At the end of this take, McCartney stops it and says, okay, that's it, that's the one. Howie Casey's rather surprised by that. No, I was just warming up. Are you kidding? Let me do a few takes. He does a few takes. Paul ends up keeping that first one that Howie Casey didn't know he was actually recording. Well, this story is repeated with Listen to What the Man Said. Apparently, Tom Scott 
saxophonist comes in to add the sax solo, last thing, one of the last things on the song, comes in and does what he thinks is a run-through, and McCartney announces that we've got it, that's the take. He tries a few more, they end up keeping that first one when the saxophonist didn't even know he was recording. So, two examples of that. Yeah. I suppose we, let's put those sax solos side by side. By the way, listen what the man said sax solo is one of the iconic sax solos in the 70s pop. It's up there with Just the Way You Are and some of those other classic sax solos from that period. Let's play those side by side. We'll play the off-the-cuff Bluebird solo followed by Listen to What the Man Said. Right. released as a single on May 16th, 1975. It went to number one in the U.S., number six in the United Kingdom, and actually it went to number one in Canada as well. Fun fact, Davy Jones, Mickey Dolenz, and Tony Orlando were around for that sax solo you mentioned. They were in the studio just hanging out when this <laughs> tune was being recorded. So a lot of special classic rock magic in the room. <laughs> The wonder of it all, baby. Great song. How do you feel about the lyrics? I don't mind the lyrics. It doesn't—it's not really about anything. It like starts great, and then <laughs> you're like, "What is this about? Who is the man? Is the man like a business? Mm. Is it Paul? Is it the government? Yeah, is it yeah. God? Who is you it?" You don't want to think too much about who the man is. No, but you yeah. got to listen. to I think him. the man is is assumed to be wise in this case. It's not yeah. the man like your boss. It's like the guy who knows things. Listen to what the man said. That guy knows. But what does he say? He says, and then he does, it's like a steel drum playing a riff, <laughs> right? He said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love the, he said, duh, duh, duh. he does the, he does a Ram like dumb guy vocal. Duh, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Duh. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And that apparently is what the man said. He said, duh, duh, duh. Right? Yeah, that's what the man so said. So crazy. I guess there's a there's another version of that. There's a she said, oh, on jet, she said, and yeah. then music plays. She said, and then music plays. It's kind of like that. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, he's the Ooh, she said. conductor in a circus. He's like, he's yeah. writing a book or something. <laughs> Characters running around. So this was a huge hit, was it not? 
Big time hit. Number one's all over the place. Which is bizarre, because does he play this one anymore? I don't... I think maybe... I don't remember seeing him play it. I think I'd be pretty excited if I saw him play it. Well, it's a pretty hard song to sing. It's pretty high. Mm -hmm. And Paul's lost a lot of that high end. It doesn't sound great anymore, so maybe that has something to do with it? Maybe. Maybe some of the other songs with high notes... He simply approaches the high note, whereas this song's high pretty much the whole time. I like the version of them doing this live from the Wings Over America album a mm. little bit more than I like this version. I like the piano really? in there. I don't. You don't hear the piano in the mix at all. It's like an electric mm. piano, too. Yeah, I can hear it in the mix. I always like the electric piano in this track. I figure it's Paul playing because it sounds a little too advanced for Linda. Oh, yeah. It's, it's most certainly Paul. The guy that mixed the record, I can't remember his name. Was it Alan O'Duffy? Yes. The band gets compressed to death on the second court. Like the band almost drops out entirely. And Paul's voice is so loud. And they were in LA when they were mixing this album. Alan would make these mixes up for cassette. So he would try to make them as loud as possible. They would listen to the mixes poolside, sitting at the pool in LA. (laughs) And... (laughs) So he was like, oh, yeah, you know what? Like, I'll fix that. And Linda was like, no, you won't. It's great the way it is. You really can hear it. It's, it's really, really aggressive compression. The same thing yeah. that was happening on another day with the bass line. Right. Side chain. Yeah. So if you want a big hit, write a good song and then compress it to death, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. Hope that's not true. <laughs> so it sounds good on the radio, man. So that brings us to the slightly depressing... And definitely quirky, final track on the album, or at least final full song on the album. Treat Her Gently, Lonely Old People. Yeah, this is a great song, and it's not two songs strung together. It is is more or less one song written at the same time, just in these two parts. That's right. It's a fine, fine song, and I love that it does connect with Listen to What the Man Said. The whole transition between that tune and these tunes is, is really fun. It's nice. It's well done. Yeah, let's just play the transition and we'll and we'll introduce this song that way. Yep.
Yeah, beautifully done. I guess I do have a single of Listen to What the Man Said somewhere. They do have a single version where they, they managed to fade it out without letting any of Treater Gently in. Yeah, that's on, um, you can find that on, I believe. Is it All the Best or? Probably All the Best, yeah. Wingspan, perhaps? The lyrics to this song are incredibly depressing. That is yes. 100% true, Chris. Yeah, it's not a rosy view of old people. It's a rather sad view of old people, fragile old people. But yeah, I, man, I, I really do like this track a lot. I love the orchestration on this track, too, by Tony Dorsey. Orchestra was added in Los Angeles, right? That's right. At no point does it sound like a spliced recording. It was a surprise to me to learn that this song was written as a unit and not as two separate songs spliced together. It was a surprise. Yeah. Huh. It was a surprise. I had always assumed that this was another of McCartney's bring two fragments together. And and it is that in a sense. It's just that they weren't pre-existing fragments. They were composed to go together. It's not so different in a way from any of his other medleys or suites, but... It's a fine way to end the album after everything we've been through. And, you know, it's a, it's the 12th track, so it's quick. And one of them was, was repeat. But it's quirky, right, to end an album with some, you know, a slightly depressing slow song about old people. Yeah. And yes, it is. And we officially end the album with a, an inside joke. And this is something I did not know until I read the Parasi book. Right. That... Crossroads is actually the theme song for a soap opera that McCartney figures old people would have been watching. So yeah. it's actually an extension of Lonely Old People, that it's a soap opera that old people liked, and it's Jimmy McCulloch playing the hell, actually. Out oh, it's of it. great. Yeah. There's a good story about this, which is that the show Crossroads did occasionally use the Wings version of the theme. Yeah, for emotional cliffhangers. <laughs> for bit yeah big episodes i guess but i think we should put wings crossroads next to the original crossroads theme So that wraps up Venus and Mars by Wings. Fantastic album, sold a whole ton of copies and set Paul up for the next record, Wings at the Speed of Sound, which supports his massively successful return to the road in America, well documented on the collection Wings Over America. So the completion of Venus and Mars was celebrated by Paul and Linda McCartney with a party on the Queen Mary, which is in Long Beach Harbor in California. It's a big old ship that's docked there, and 200 people were invited. 
Some of those people were Mickey Dolenz, Davy Jones, Mick Jagger, Carol King, all of Led Zeppelin, Joni Mitchell, Helen Reddy, Jim Webb, so on and so forth. But the most interesting part of this party was that the meters, Professor Longhair, Alan Toussaint, Ernie K. Doe, Lee Dorsey, all these guys they met in New Orleans performed. And the performances were recorded. And the meters and also Professor Longhair sets were released as records that were very well received. So out of all this fun from Nashville to New Orleans, you get a big party on a boat in L.A. that produces even more records. The only quote I'd like to mention is that Paul said about this record, I thought it would be better than Band on the Run, and I think it is better. Well, he's wrong about that, but it's pretty (laughs) damn good. So that wraps up our podcast on Venus and Mars. Next up, Wings at the Speed of Sound, which will be our last podcast for season one. We'll see you guys next time. You've been listening to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We just discussed Venus and Mars. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.